welcome to the Ranching Brunette Podcast. I am your host, Logan Robinson, and this is the podcast for aspiring first-generation ranchers by an aspiring first-generation rancher with one goal in mind, to get America ranching again. Thank you for joining me for episode number 20 with Sarah Beth of Flying Pig Cattle Company. I'm really excited for you to hear this episode. Sarah Beth brought so much great insight and advice into multi-species grazing, implementing meat goats into your operation, as well as the benefits of 4-H and how to support your local 4-H groups or start a club of your own. So let's head on into episode number 20 and let's get to know Sarah Beth of Flying Pig Cattle Company just a little bit better. All right, Sarah Beth, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to have you on the Ranging Brunette podcast, and I'm really excited to hear about your journey as a farmer and the start of Flying Pig Cattle Company. Will you share your story with us? So my husband and I met in college about five years after college. We started dating again. We got married. Um, We got married in 2015, and we started Flying Pig Cattle Company. And so our most common question is, why is our name Flying Pig when we don't raise pigs at all? (laughs) And growing up, I was the girl that always said I was never getting married. I've been super independent my whole life and didn't need a man and all that. And so I always said I was never getting married. Well, when Colton proposed to me, we had not put a lot about our relationship on Facebook. I mean, the people that knew needed that needed to know knew. And so when we got engaged, the picture I posted on Facebook said, well, pigs were flying in Hickory Plains tonight. Colton and I are getting married. And it became a running joke. And 90% of the wedding presents we got had something to do with flying pigs. And it was just fun. And so Colt jokingly said, well, we're the Flying Pig Cattle Company. Well, we liked it and it stuck. And so that's what we use now. I love that. That is adorable. (laughs) It's silly, but it's a lot of fun. And then apparently flying pigs became a cool thing and they're everywhere now. So I still can find stuff at Hobby Lobby knows my downfall. And so Hobby Lobby, Walmart, the whole nine yards, I can find flying pigs everywhere. Oh, that's fantastic. And yeah, Hobby Lobby is my weakness. All the farmhouse decor they have out constantly. Oh boy, gets me in trouble. (laughs) So how soon into your marriage were you when you started getting the idea to go ahead and make a living out of doing this? Well, we've both were raised on farms. I grew up rodeoing. My family rodeoed. I was, I've done every single event you can imagine, including riding bulls. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) But that's another story. My husband grew up breaking and training horses and he worked on some cattle farms in college and whatnot. And, and so we knew we wanted to farm. That was in our, in our goal list. And right before we got married, my husband had been running a row crop farm, his own row crop farm in the Southern part of the state. When we got married, he moved up to central Arkansas and sold his farm. And we knew we both loved cattle and that's what we wanted to do. And I've always had goats. And so we started with a few inherited cattle that we had had with our parents' herd that we kind of pulled together to make our herd. We bought some um, family land. Um, We actually live right next door to my mom and dad. We bought my grandparents' land that they run a dairy farm on until the mid-80s. And so we just kind of started from scratch and are growing at a slow rate, but it's a steady rate and it's worked really well for us. What a fantastic start to your guys' journey. It's been great. We've had a lot of help from both my parents and his parents and, and our families have really encouraged us and helped us in any way that they could. 
I'm loving what you're doing over on your blog as well. You you have such a fantastic approach to educating folks and your recently launched Female Farmer Friday segment is amazing. I admire your blogging style in helping to share this knowledge with others, especially through sharing your passions like you put on your blog of family, farming, and finances. When did you first get the idea to create your blog and how has it impacted your business? So... I am a podcast and a blog junkie. I love to listen to podcasts and I love to read other people's blogs. And last summer, I kind of got sucked in to the financial independence movement, which has nothing to do with farming. So I guess I just needed to change for a little bit. And I was reading a lot of these blogs and and these people were just sharing their everyday everyday lives and trying to encourage other people to make small changes to improve their finances. And I was like, well... What if I shared our story on how we're trying to make a farm work on um, our salaries of our two off-farm jobs and try to encourage other people to to do that or just to let them know why we do what we do? Because um, we both know that a lot of our public is not educated on how the farm works. And I've always loved to write, so I thought that I would just give it a shot and give it a go. And I started, I think I published my first article in September of 2018. And I don't think I shared anything until either the Christmas time or so and might have been after the first of this year. But I was so I was embarrassed almost I didn't want to share anything at first. And it's been an ongoing process. Other than sharing your first post, what has been the hardest part for you in doing this blogging journey? Making sure that what I write is completely accurate because, I mean, we both know when when you're around other farmers and and people in our our agriculture industry is you hear things all the time and sometimes you just take them for a fact. And it's been when I'm writing these things that I just thought, well, I've known that my whole life, so it must be true is I want, I make myself go back and double check that and make sure that that's accurate because I don't want to share things with people that aren't accurate because then that loses that trust. And so I want to be as truthful as I can. And sometimes that means questioning what I've always known and whether or not it's accurate. Absolutely. There's so much truth behind that because, you know, it's hard, um, especially when reading something, you don't always get the reasoning or uh, intonation behind what we're trying to say. And folks can easily take things the wrong way and twist it. And it's really unfortunate in what we do when we're trying to help educate others. So I love that. Take the time to do that because there's so much importance behind that. There is. And, you know, my pet peeve, and I have lots of them, but is when I'm scrolling through Facebook and someone shares something and I'm like, you had to know that that was not true, but you hit share. Why not take three (laughs) seconds to Google something and confirm that it's not a bunch of BS before you hit share? And so since that bothers me, no, it has to bother other people. So I try, try to get that little bit of confirmation before I share something with the public. Absolutely. And my favorite is folks that are obviously not in the agricultural industry in any way. And, you know, you see things all the time going around. It's like how a lot of this is common sense, not even agricultural knowledge, but just common sense. And it's a pet peeve of mine as well, because you see folks post things. Yes, isn't it? It's so sad. It's so sad. And there was this video going around that this cow was being butchered and it clearly was not alive. It was a vegan group, like a PETA group. And they were posting this saying, this cow's still alive. It's being cut up alive. And I wanted to be, I did not, but I was like, okay, I would like to see you hang a live cow upside down 
and have it just hang there alive, nice and quiet like that. Yeah, see how that goes for you. <laughs> and they were, you know, just processing through regular stuff and they were cutting through some tendons. And so the leg was jerking as they were cutting through that, right? I mean, that's a suspension system. And I'm sitting there mm-hmm. going, are you kidding me? Like, I dare you mm-hmm. to go grab a cow by its back legs and string it up like that without any equipment. Like, Good luck. <laughs> And this is why I cannot like look at these things because I don't have a filter and it's probably part of my downfall. So I want to just tell these people, are you an idiot? And I mean, I know that that's not okay to ask people that, but sometimes that's all <laughs> I can say. Exactly. I, I don't even know how this came up on my feed. I think they had tagged us in one of our hashtags of advocate instead of advocate was advocate. I'm like, are you kidding me right now? <laughs> Well, I got tickled when you had your interview with Brandy Buzzard, whom I'm like obsessed with. I think she's awesome. And she made a comment that when you're, you know, communicating with people that you cannot start off by telling them they're an idiot and expect them to listen and communicate with you. And I'm like, I just need to replay her telling me that over and over again whenever I'm scrolling through Facebook. You cannot start by telling them they're an idiot. Oh, she did such a great job. And I was laughing when she said that was that was fantastic. Because <laughs> she's right. And you're right. You can't call people idiots. You won't get anywhere. You can't, but you can thank it. Absolutely. I'm just saying. Yep. <laughs> I love your approach to multi-species grazing. I mean, what a great way to diversify your operation, all while adding another revenue source. Will you share how you started to implement this on your farm and the benefits that result from this? So we kind of started our multi-species grazing out of necessity. I'd always heard good things about it and that there were benefits, but we only have so much land and so many pastures. And so we run my goats along with our mini Herefords in one pasture together. And it's worked really great for us so far. And like you said, it adds another revenue source. It kind of diversifies our operation. Also has other benefits to it. So when you graze goats and cattle together, the number one benefit that we were going for is a lower parasite load on the pasture. So goats and cattle do not share internal parasites. So the worms that goats get, cows don't get, and vice versa. And so as they graze, the cattle will consume some of the goat worms that are deposited into the pasture. And when they consume them, that ends the life cycle of that parasite. So it lowers the parasite load on the pasture as a whole, which is beneficial to both the goats and the cattle. Interesting. And then the, I mean, another really good benefit is the increased carrying capacity of that pasture because we all know in different areas of the country and the state that our stocking rate is different depending on your pasture and how much vegeta- vegetation you have. Well, cattle are considered grazers, so they're mostly going to consume the good grasses that they enjoy in a pasture. And goats are different. Goats are browsers. They prefer your woody brush, the shrubs, the briars, weeds, um, your broad leaves. And so they're not going to eat the same vegetation in the pasture as your cattle. And so you can increase the carrying capacity of your pasture by mixing those two different species. I don't have a lot of experience with goats. I tried purchasing a couple goats years ago and I could not keep them contained and they screamed all day long. They were the cutest things, but I just, I wasn't clicking with the goats. And I'm noticing more and more folks are doing this multi-species grazing, which just fascinates me because I don't know a lot about it. I mean, I just have horses and cattle. Mm -hmm. So this is really fascinating to me. And you guys raise chickens as well, right? 
We've got a few. I have about five that uh, my husband built me a little chicken tractor that I can pull behind the, the four wheeler. And so they get moved across our yard about once a week so they can have fresh grass. But those are mainly for our benefit. I sell some eggs whenever we get overrun with them. But we use that to fertilize our yard because we just move them around the yard as they eat their grass. That's just fascinating as well because, you know, it also helps keep down on insects, you know, as they're pecking through as you move the tractor. It's they're fertilizing. They're helping control the insects. I just think that's another awesome Mm -hmm. avenue in adding another species. A lot of people don't think about that either. And not that maybe you might not always have them like in your pasture or anything like that, but benefiting other parts of your property that may not have livestock on it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Whenever I was, I'm working on an article on the multi-species grazing for the blog, and I was reading um, one publication that was talking about, they've had studies that found that land grazed by both goats and cattle or sheep and cattle were 20 to 25% more productive, as in more profitable, than land grazed by cattle alone. And I guess it's just the diversification of being able to you know, have two different profitable species on the same amount of land without interfering with what each species needs. And so I'm interested to see how that plays out as we get a little further into our operation. Like I said, I love your guys' approach to that because what a great way to utilize every square inch of your property and not only having your cattle, but with the goats. And especially when like us first generation farmers are getting started, like you said, land is not always the biggest resource that we have readily available to us. So I just love hearing about these type of operations and just you guys making the most out of your land and also improving it at the same time because having the multi-species on there, it's just all the benefits for the land and your operation. It's just incredible to me. Yeah, land's not readily available to us. I mean, we are, we're in the Delta of Arkansas. So most of the pasture land that would be great for us is put into row crops. We grow um, over 50% of the country's rice in the Delta of Arkansas. Wow. So most of our fields that are would be useful for pasture land are growing rice, soybeans, or corn for the most part. And so just plain pasture land is not as easy to come across. And that the, that that you do find is priced out of our small farm budget. So we're just having to figure out how to do more with less when it comes to land. That's fascinating. I did not know that about the rice. That's so neat. And up here, you know, there's not a lot of farming. We we do mostly cattle in Montana and a lot of hay and wheat crops and whatnot. We just don't have the best weather for a lot of the farming crops to do large food crops. So that's not something that's always in the forefront of my mind of, you know, for other areas as far as mm-hmm. that is something that gets used up for other food resources. Yeah. And that can be quite the challenge, I'm sure. It is. And Arkansas is so diversified in our agriculture, depending on what part of the state you're in. We have areas of the state that are huge poultry producers. Tyson is based out of northwest Arkansas. So we have areas that are overrun with poultry houses. We have a lot of timber. So fun fact, and my family makes fun of me because of my fun facts, but when (laughs) Arkansas was founded, 90% of the land that is now Arkansas was in trees. And so that has scaled back significantly, but we still have a large, very large timber industry in Arkansas as well. And so between chickens and timber and then the Delta, which is the eastern half of Arkansas, the Mississippi River Delta, that's most of our row crops. And 
So we just have a wide variety. There's areas that are big in pork production and cattle production, and we have a lot of hay. So it really, I mean, you can find just about every aspect of agriculture at some point in Arkansas. And we have aquaculture, but we have the biggest catfish and bait fish and goldfish farms in Arkansas, like some of the biggest in the world. And it's just amazing at the variety that we have. Talk about a self-sufficient state. I mean, you guys could get every food source just about out of your one state. Pretty much. And it's so funny to me. I mean, just because just I'm not that, from that part of the country, mm-hmm. I never really thought of the Arkansas area being so big and significant in agriculture. I just love learning this kind of stuff. So keep the fun facts coming because I love it. We're not in like the top 10 of production in most things. I think um, we're like 10th in the country in cattle, maybe. We're first or second in broilers, which is our chickens. But as far as outside of the broilers and rice, we're not hardly in the top 10. And so people don't think of us. And I think it's because of the variety. We're a jack of all trades, master of none, I guess you would say, or master of rice. But (laughs) because our land, we don't have a whole lot of land, but what we do have is divided amongst so many different agriculture aspects that we don't have enough land to focus on just one part of the agriculture industry. Sure. That makes sense. Absolutely. But just still so fascinating to me. I love learning that kind of stuff. Oh, I'm all about fun facts. I love learning them and pulling them out in random conversations. Oh, well, keep it coming because I thought it was fascinating. I didn't even think about timber either. And I know like uh, on the podcast, we talk a lot about cattle here. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited to hear more about the meat goat side of your operation. And other than obviously them being a completely different species, how would you say this differs from raising and selling beef? And what are the biggest things folks should know and consider about raising goats and then maybe selling their goat meat as another revenue source? So goats are a lot higher maintenance than beef. And I will say that up front. Um, They're smaller, but they are higher maintenance. And I love them. I've had goats my whole life. We used to raise goats um, for goat tying and rodeos. And um, so what we've raised has changed over the years as far as breeds go. I showed goats in high school through FFA, and so we have went from Spanish breeds. When I was showing, we got heavier into the boar breeds, and then the boars are awesome as far as meat production, but in our high humidity environment, they also struggle with parasites more. So after I got out of the show goat business, we went back towards the Spanish, and for your cattle producers, I will say your Spanish goats are kind of like the longhorns of the goat world. And as they're kind of more self-sustaining and lower maintenance, and um, they kind of take care of themselves when they kid. A lot of the times they'll kid out in the pasture. They really don't need your assistance, nor do they want it. They are the lower maintenance breed, but we still have a lot of issues around here with parasites. Dewormers in goats, there are none that are being currently researched or produced as far as new technologies, and we have a significant problem with resistance to dewormers in goats. And so internal parasites are an everyday struggle. And there are some parts, like we have some dewormers that don't even work in our area anymore. You can use them and it's not going to make a difference in the worm load in your goats because they're just so resistant to them. And uh, so that's a big struggle. We've, it started raining last September and did not stop until about May of this year. And the wet 
spring and winter that we had has caused foot rot problems in a lot of my goats. And this is the first time I've ever had this significant of a foot rot problem in my 30 something years of having goats. And so they are higher maintenance in that aspect. But what's great about them is they don't consume a lot of your grass in your pasture like we mentioned earlier I can turn them in a briar bush and they can clean it up and it's not taking away anything from the horses or the cattle that we have as well and as far as the goat meat goes we've consumed goat meat my whole life that I remember we always would take some and get them turned into ground goat and so we would use that in place of ground hamburger meat in some of our dishes but I didn't realize that it's such a big deal to some people like never heard of it they aren't really interested in trying it but in some cultures like that's their number one source of red meat and it's actually really healthy and probably the most common thing I hear is that it's going to have a gamey taste well if you butcher a six-year-old Billy that's been breeding his whole life it's probably going to have a gamey taste but we we usually focus on the ones that are a year to year and a half old that have been weathered. And so they don't have the hormones running through them that might give them that gamey taste. And, and they're not old and tough or anything like that. But people don't realize that goat meat is actually really healthy because it's very low in fat and cholesterol. And so the USDA has a chart of different protein types and compares them. So like for a three ounce serving of goat, it's only going to be about 122 calories. Well, if you compare that to chicken, who everyone thinks is the healthy meat, that that's 162 calories per three ounce serving. Mm-hmm. So significantly less there. But the biggest difference is the fat. Oh. Goats are different from other livestock that we raise in how they deposit their fat. So when you're looking at a steak in in a store that you're wanting to buy, you're going to look for that marbling, right? You want that fat and that marbling to be really good because that's Mm going to show you that that steak's going to have good flavor. It's going to be tender. Well, Goats do not deposit fat inside their muscle like beef, and so their fat is deposited on the outside. So whenever you have a goat butchered, that fat can be trimmed off the outside, and so whenever you get it ground up into ground meat, there's not a lot of fat in it. So when you brown it to make tacos, there's hardly any grease to drain off because there's not a lot of fat. And it's just the the way the goat deposits their fat. It's not inside that muscle, which the steaks, the goat steaks or loin chops or whatever you want to call the cut is they're not going to be as tender. A lot of your goat cuts are going to be a slower cooking cut of meat. They're not going to be the the fast on the grill or searing it in the in the skillet. But it's because of that fat and the way that they deposit it. That is fascinating to me. I had no idea. Obviously, I know nothing about raising meat goats, but I really had no idea on how they deposited their fat. That's that's just fascinating to me. And the struggle with that as far as raising them is that you can't feed a goat to, um, you can't feed lot style feed a goat to butcher weight. Like, you know, you can stick a pig in a pen and just pour the feed to it and it's going to eat and it's going to get fatter and it's going to get to the weight that you want it to be to take it to the locker plant. Goats are not that way. You cannot just feed them because if they get fat, they're just going to have fat. That's not going to make you more muscle to give you more meat. 
always tell my kids that show goats for 4-H that, you know, the exercise is the most important part of raising a show goat because you can't just feed them to make them bigger. Is You actually have to exercise them so that they build that muscle so that they can get to the weight and the size and the structure that you want. Interesting. Now, what's your predator issues down in Arkansas with protecting goats? Because like I know up here we have grizzly bears, black bears, mountain lions, all that kind of stuff. What is the predator struggles for you guys with goats? Coyotes and buzzards are our biggest issue in my part of the state. Ah. We don't have a lot. We don't have bears on my side of the state because I'm in the prairie on western Arkansas. They do have bears in the Washita Mountains and, and over there. But we have coyote problems. And what helps with that is that our goats are kept in a net wire fence. We have four by four or field fence all the way around their pen, which helps with keeping the coyotes out. That's another benefit of the multi-species grazing is that the cattle are in with the goats. And so that helps protect them. A lot of people have livestock guardian dogs. We do not, but that is something that could protect. But during kidding season, buzzards are a big issue, especially if there's not a lot for the buzzards to eat they will kill a kid quicker than than I can do anything wow. about it. Oh, that's awful. Um, but we also struggle with buzzards on calves as well. It's it's an issue. Buzzards are protected, wow. and so legally we're not allowed to kill them. And so um, that's an issue that, that we've dealt with, and, and Farm Bureau has, has advocated for farmers as far as protection. If we do need to protect our livelihood from buzzards, you know, what options do we have? Yeah, some kind of livestock depredation program or something for them. Because mm-hmm. I know like for grizzly bears here, they're federally protected too. And however, they do have some exception, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, that if they're destroying livestock, they're going to do something to either remove the bear or euthanize the bear if he's a repeat offender. Mm-hmm. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed for you guys. They do something with the buzzards in that area as well. I'm hoping so. That's just a, a devastating loss. You know, we work so hard to raise our livestock, whatever it might be, and then to lose them to predators, even if you do everything you possibly can to avoid it. You know, it's, it's an expensive loss and it's just it's devastating for a lot of folks. Yes, it's it can be very devastating, especially for the smaller operations. You know, whenever they're only having 10 to 15 calves a year, losing a calf to a buzzard is a significant impact on their bottom line. Absolutely. And then you guys, you said you have many Herefords, correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I would imagine them too being a lot smaller, they might be more susceptible to coyotes and the buzzards as well. I imagine their calves are significantly smaller than their full-size counterparts. They are. They are small. I always laugh that the, the two calves we've had born on our place have been smaller than my dog. And, um, and really we have them for fun. Those are just a fun project for me and my mom. We, um, we bought us a couple. Yeah. We have four uh, females and a bull, and they are significantly smaller. We've not had, knock on wood, we've not had predator issues with them yet, but it, it definitely can be a problem. Our mom goats and our mama cows have seemed to have really good maternal instincts, and so like we've seen them. I've watched my goats run a buzzard out of a pasture before, just run them down, and so oh, wow. those are the mamas <laughs> that I want to keep in the herd because they are very protective um, so I'm hoping that the maternal instincts of a few will just keep the buzzards at bay and, and keep coyotes out. My parents have longhorn cattle, and I've watched them run a stray dog or a coyote pups, just run them until they die almost because they know that they're not supposed to be in that pasture. So the 
the cattle can take care of themselves most of the time, but it's the few times that they can't that that'll really get you. Absolutely. You're so right there. And it's unfortunate when those circumstances happen and mm-hmm. or those situations, I should say. And it's nice when you have those mamas that are super protective and can help you with that. Mm-hmm. You also have a huge involvement in 4-H through being a 4-H agent, which I absolutely love and admire that because I think more folks should be a part of this. I grew up in 4-H myself and what a great way to educate and encourage the next generation in agriculture. This is something I'm deeply passionate about as well. And this just kind of being in 4-H and the FFA programs and whatnot really helped shape me and educate me. Will you share with us the importance, in your opinion, of our 4-H programs and how parents can get their children involved? So 4-H is a passion of mine, and I did a little bit in 4-H growing up, but I was not super actively involved, and I did FFA through high school, and and a lot of my FFA buddies did 4-H as well. But when I got out of college, and I found this job as a 4-H agent, it was the best thing that I could have found for me career-wise because I've always loved working with kids and I'm so passionate about agriculture that this just gave me the opportunity to share what I know about ag with youth. And I do want people to know that 4-H is more than agriculture because our three mission mandates for 4-H nationwide are healthy living, 4-H science and STEM, and citizenship and leadership. None of those are ag, but ag does fall into almost all of them. So healthy living, we incorporate ag as into um, gardening, growing your own food, the health, healthy ways to cook beef and other meats. And then um, science is the actual science behind raising your animals and what do your plants need to grow and how does all that work? And then citizenship and leadership is our kids take on a leadership role in their county programs and they teach these things to other youth. So our um, younger generation, the younger kids, They don't want to sit and listen to an adult talk to them all day about this and that. But if I can send some of my 4-H teen leaders into a classroom, they just eat it up because it's these teenagers and they're high schoolers and they look up to them so much that when they come in to teach them something, they listen, they pay attention and they soak it in. Absolutely. I do a lot of ag literacy programs through my 4-H program in Lone Oak County and here in Arkansas. Um, And that's from kindergarten all the way to seniors in high school. We work with them. We do 4-H. Our focus is hands-on learning. We want kids to do stuff. We know that they'll retain more of the information if they do something hands-on than if we just talk to them or they read it in a book. And so we do hands-on activities from 5 years old to 19 years old and get them involved and get them learning where their food comes from, what farmers do to produce that food, the path their food takes from seed to plant to grocery store to their plate and the the life cycle of the cattle and the pigs and the chickens and the goats and everything and, and how important that is to their everyday life. That's wonderful. I love that you guys take that time in educating them. And what a great way to have, you know, the team leaders come in, you know, being teenagers and whatnot. And you're absolutely right. I remember when I was very young being in 4-H and they would bring in Um, our senior 4-H members, and they would talk about things. And it was such a different perspective Mm -hmm. hearing them talk about it as opposed to our 4-H leader or other adults in agriculture. And the clubs I I was in was all agricultural Mm -hmm. clubs. You're so right. 4-H has so many more aspects to it, and it'll really help shape and develop our youth in this country in more ways than just in agriculture. So I'm glad you brought that point up because there's so many wonderful 
programs and types of clubs. And I know it varies a little bit throughout the country, but the premise of 4-H that's there is just, it's incredible for shaping and developing youth into striving and succeeding adults. Definitely. I always say there's something for everyone in 4-H, whether you're interested in technology or photography or cooking or agriculture or uh, yoga. We have a yoga for kids program in Arkansas and it has been a hit. Some of our extension personnel developed it and they've taken it across the country. But these kids, you know, at first they're oh, yoga's for girls, and I don't do yoga, and then they complain about it, but once they actually get to doing it, they realize how fun it is, and how much it is an actual workout. I can't tell you how many boys I have that are so anti-yoga when we start, and then it's part of their PE class when I come in to do it, so they have to participate, and then halfway through, they're huffing and puffing, and like, Sarah Beth, can we take a break? And I'm like, see, I told you, it's a real workout. But I mean, like I said, it's something for everyone and and no matter what your interest is, you can do that as a 4-H project and you can be successful at it. I know a lot of folks will sum it up to being a lot of what's missing from our standard educational system, whether you're public schooled or homeschooled or whatever. You know, these are a lot of the additional life skills that should be taught to children in general. And so 4-H is a great way to meet that need and then also let each individual pick where their interests are, where their passions are, and then build that club or that project around it. And I think it's a really neat tool that parents can utilize in helping their children throughout their educational process. Definitely. And we do have a lot of homeschooled groups that get involved in 4-H. And then I'm even in the schools. We have um, four school districts in the county that I work in. And one school district, I come in to every fourth grade class once a month and We work on projects that are tied into their standards as far as citizenship, learning how their government works and things like that. But then we also tie in the leadership and the teamwork skills of that. Learning about how to communicate. It's amazing to me, the people that go through school, graduate high school and cannot work as a part of a group. And I tell my kids all the time, my fourth graders, I'm like, whether you like it or not, you're going to have to work as part of a team at some point in your life. And it's important to have those skills readily available when that time comes. And so we talk about doing teamwork. I make them work in teams to accomplish goals. And a lot of the times they fail. And just we remind them one person in a group does not fail. You either fail as a group or you succeed as a group. So you talking down to someone else in your group is not going to help because if they fail, you fail. And that's a concept that a lot of them don't like at the beginning. They don't like relying on other people. And I totally understand that because I'm independent. I would just assume to do something myself. But that's not <laughs> always possible. And so, and I'll even tell them stories. I am the same way. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell them personal stories. I'm, I'll be like, guys, I had to do this one time and I just wanted to do all of it, but I didn't have the time. So I had to delegate. And they'll just laugh because they know, they know me and they know that I just assume to do stuff myself. But when they see that even as an adult, I can't do it on myself, whether I want to or not, they realize, oh crap, I might have to work with people one day. This might be important for me to learn. And it's fun when that light bulb just clicks in their head like, oh, this this is an important skill. I'm so glad you went into that. And I know if like for me, I was very shy when I was younger and 4-H really helped me get over that. I obviously did the horse programs quite a Mm -hmm. bit 
and having to get out there and show your project in shows with other people and then being able to get up and talk. We had like the quiz bowl. I don't know if they still do that, but we had like the quizzes and whatnot and all that kind of stuff, as well as getting up in speaking in front of your 4-H group. And those things really helped me get over those fears and just conquer them. And absolutely, I've used a lot of those tools that I learned as a kid in 4-H as an adult. And it's just a really great way to build confidence, learn how to work in a team, like you're saying, and then help them gain some of those skills that are really important that a lot of folks, or, you know, kids don't have. And it's interesting to me that a lot of kids don't mm-hmm. have this, but what a great way for the parents listening to get your kids out there and just get in that teamwork and get involved. Oh, definitely. And the younger you start them, the better. But I have had kids come in at 12, 13 years old and terrified to even speak in front of their club. And then by the time that they graduate five years later, they're running for a state office or they're speaking at a district or state event and they're speaking in front of larger groups. And I'm like, how do you change that much in three to four years? But 4-H can do that for you because it just provides you the opportunity to learn and the opportunity to practice and the opportunity to see other people your age succeeding. And that's just that confidence builder that, that teaches kids that it's okay to stand up in front of people and talk. It's okay to mess up. And no one's going to laugh at you. They're just going to go along with it. And and I've seen so many kids get up their first speech at what we call Orama is our county competition. And they'll get up and they'll get a few sentences Mm -hmm. in and just panic. And then they learn that no one laughs at them. And we'll be like, okay, just start over. Take a deep breath. Start from the beginning. And they make it through. And it's like, oh, well, that wasn't that bad. You know, failure is not the end of the world. and, And that's important for us to learn as adults and as farmers, failure is not the end of the world. Yeah. Like a lot of folks say that they fail their way to success. And definitely, I love how 4-H, it sets you up for success, but it also guides you through the failures. Like you're saying, I remember when I had to get up in front of my club and speak for the first time and our club had like 40 kids in Mm -hmm. it. I was terrified. I failed miserably. And then my leader was great in guiding me through it. And in no time, like you're saying, I was speaking in front of clubs, you know, bigger than that or groups bigger than that at events and It's amazing the confidence that's built and then the guidance through the failures in order to set our youth up for success. Mm -hmm. Now, we talked a lot about youth in 4-H. How could someone get involved, like for the parents or other adults that are wanting to become either a 4-H agent or a club leader? What would be your advice of some of these adults wanting to help give back in these 4-H programs? 4-H is always in need of volunteers and good active volunteers that, that are passionate about what they want to teach. And and so as far as a 4-H agent career go, goes, that's a job through your cooperative extension service. Every state has one through their land-grant university. Here in Arkansas, various degrees can qualify you to become a 4-H agent. In Arkansas, you only have to have a bachelor's. A master's is preferred, but you can start with a bachelor's degree, four-year degree. I'm sure most states are very similar. And I could have had a degree in just about anything and qualified because 4-H is such a varied program. I did not have to have an agriculture degree like I had. I could have had a child development degree. I could have had some kind of cool science degree. I could have had a family and consumer science background. And so that's one cool thing about a 4-H agent is no matter what your background is, is you can be good at that job. And then as far as volunteer roles, club leaders are needed all over, I know. And you do not have to run the club by yourself. And this is one thing I tell my volunteers all the time is 
get a couple parents that that you're friends with and y'all start a club. You only have to have six, eight kids get started and meet once a month and tag team. One parent plan one month's meeting. One parent plan another month's meeting. One parent brings some snacks. One parent contact a guest speaker to come in. It's not, it does not have to overwhelm your life. You can volunteer for a little bit a month, a little bit of time every month and, and run a successful club. And just think of all the impacts that you're having on, on the kids in your community not even at a nationwide level, but just at your community level. Think about the lives that you can change in kids by providing that opportunity for them to grow and develop and to learn. I remember the impact of my 4-H leaders on me, and I remember all of their names. And it's incredible. I mean, it's a huge sacrifice, obviously, for time and whatnot to be a volunteer and run a club. But coming from somebody who was greatly impacted by 4-H and by these leaders, I can tell you it is definitely worth it. The time that you give as a volunteer really helps so many kids and is so far reaching. And a lot of folks don't always mm-hmm. realize that. So if you're able to, I strongly encourage folks to be able to volunteer and help out, even if you're just you know, a parent wanting to help create a club for your child, because there might not be that particular type of club in your mm-hmm. area. Start, start small and it might grow or it might not, but at least you're going to have that impact, if only for your own children. Uh, but you might impact some others in your community as well. And it's just a really neat thing to be able to give your time and pay it forward. Because that's really what it's all about is paying it forward and helping the next generation get started and succeed. For sure. And even if you don't have kids and you just have a cool skill that you think would be awesome for kids to learn, go to your extension office and let them know what you do and what you want to help with. And they might have a club that's open to outside volunteers coming in to teach their kids something. So say you're good working with your hands and building something and you think the kids would love to learn, volunteer to host a club meeting and teach the kids that. Or if you have a cool job in an awesome industry, invite the club to come tour your job, tour your office or your establishment, whatever it may be, and teach them how that business runs. I think one of the best things we can teach kids today is how to run a business themselves because entrepreneurship is seems to be taking over the country. So if these kids can see a build, business that you've built from the ground up, invite them over, walk them through, teach them how you did it. And, and that's another opportunity to volunteer that's not a every month commitment, but still has a significant impact on the kids' lives. Absolutely. I'm so glad you went into all this. And I thank you so much for sharing your knowledge on 4-H and through being a 4-H agent, because it's something that I would hate to see go by the wayside just because folks may not be fully aware of it or know how to volunteer or help out. And Mm -hmm. it's just something that's amazing to give back to our youth on. Definitely. Uh, Sarah Beth, this has been so much fun. I've just thoroughly enjoyed everything you brought to the table today. And our final question, I love asking this for each guest that comes on, just because The answer always varies, and I think it helps all of our listeners. So what would be your best piece of advice to someone wanting to be a part of the agricultural industry in today's world? Probably to never stop learning and don't be afraid to try something new. My husband Colton always says the most dangerous phrase in the English language is, but we've always done it that way. (laughs) And just because we've always done something one way does not mean that that's the best way to do it. And so keep yourself educated, whether that means taking a college class or going to an extension workshop or going to a Farm Bureau conference or whatever way you want to learn, listening to podcasts, reading books, however you learn best, 
keep learning about all aspects of agriculture. And then whenever you find what you want to do, immerse yourself in that world and see how everybody does it. Because you might pull something from one farm that you like, but then pull another uh, operation operations ideas to tie into yours because the same thing's not going to work on every farm. I mean, we've covered how many differences between Montana and Arkansas today. Yeah. And so you've got to research and figure out what's going to work best for you. And here's what I have to remind myself because I am type A and OCD and change stresses me out. But if I try something and it doesn't work, I can always go back to the way I did it. And that's what I have to remind myself is Change is not going to be the end of the world. Failure is not going to be the end of the world. If it doesn't work, we can either try something different or go back to the way we did it. But we're not going to know if we don't try. Thank you so much for that. And there's so much truth in that. And knowledge is power. And I love it when Mm -hmm. our guests go into that because there's so much truth behind it. That's the, the best thing that you can do is just, like you said, have knowledge of what you want to do and then learn all the possible ways there are to do it. I couldn't agree with you more. And Sarah Beth, where can we learn more about you and your business as well as your Female Farmer Friday? So the website is flyingpigcattleco.com. And then I'm also on Facebook and Instagram at Flying Pig Cattle Co. I share all the blog posts on both Instagram and Facebook and they'll pop up on the homepage of the website. Perfect, Sarah Beth. For everybody listening in, you have to give her a follow. I follow her on Instagram. I'm not super active on Facebook, but her posts are incredible. I absolutely love her blogs. You guys will get a kick out of this as well because she just does such a great job of educating and then bringing other women in the agricultural industry onto her blog for her Female Farmer Friday segments. And I love learning about all these other women and their start and their take on agriculture. And Sarah Beth, I thank you for bringing this to folks and bringing this out and putting it on social media. I know it's it could be really a challenge to get this stuff out there and put yourself out there, but I thank you for it because you do a fantastic job. I love your style and I love your approach. Thank you so much. You've been so supportive, Logan, and I've enjoyed talking to you today. Me too, Sarah Beth. Thank you so much. This has just been fantastic.